the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. Noah Rothman is an associate editor of Commentary, but he is the author of Unjust Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, and that's why I asked him on today. Noah and I are old pals, but Unjust is his first book, and I think I've done 100 tweets about Unjust, Noah Rothman. Welcome. Good morning to you. Thank you so much. And yes, you've done many tweets. All of them, I, you know, you can't pay for that kind of uh, the kind of endorsement and, and uh, deep insight into the book. I really appreciate it. Well, you could try and pay me. I mean, that would be okay. No, I, I actually, I was on vacation and I was reading Unjust and I just kept quoting it because it is a, it's just a fantastic exploration of the identitarian left and the alt-right. And so I stopped Margie Ross. I was at the National Religious Broadcasters. Margie is the president of Regnery, which published it. Then I stopped. The, the owner, uh, uh, President CEO of Salem, and said, Unjust is our sleeper. Unjust is the best book I've read in a long time. Unjust has got to get more uh, advertising, more traction. How's the book doing? Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I, it did really well for, I mean, for a first time author that nobody really outside this business knew about. Uh, it did very well. And, uh, you know, we got attention from places that you didn't think you would, like MSNBC, where I'm a contributor, obviously, but a lot of people on the network wanted to talk about it, Bill Maher. And I, and I went around the country and talked about it. Um, you know, it was expected to be a quick, quick hit of a book, and it's had some longevity to it. So it's more than I could have ever expected. Margie said it's got legs, and that means we want to grow them. I, I love it when you and Eddie Gloud, uh, you're one of the two people that go and do missionary work at MSNBC along with me. Uh, and uh, you do Morning Joe, which I can't do because I'm on the radio, but I'm, I always love looking up and seeing you there and debating Eddie. Let me get to the book, Unjust. I want to read from page 92. Perhaps the best description of the identitarian activist class ethos is a collective antipathy to fortune and the fortunate. God, that's brilliant. Not a very lofty ethos, perhaps, but it is not without philosophical and ideological precedence, Rousseau, I would argue. A variety of philosophers and theoreticians throughout history dedicated their careers to polishing envy and class consciousness until they shine with a bogus academic luster. Five check marks, two lines. That's my highest in my own little weird... Uh, uh, side notes. That paragraph is everything, Noah. Thank you very much. Yeah, the, so uh, there is an, a robust philosophical foundation to social justice. It has historical origins dating back to the mid-19th century as a religious concept. But most academics would, would consider social justice sort of a Rawlsian phenomenon. But modern social justice advocates really have no use for Rawls. They're much more attracted to a, a, a school of philosophical thought that regards luck and fortune with great hostility. And there is a, a substantial foundation of academic work there, too. Um, and the, you get really to the basics of foundational efforts to level societies over the course of history when you start regarding luck 
and fortune with this sort of disdain and hostility. And you get to the effort to level societies, which usually manifest in downward social leveling as opposed to creating positive opportunities for people who deserve them as individuals. And then you start seeing people not as people, but as collective classes and tribes and avatars of groups. And that's when you can do some really terrible things to people when you dehumanize them like that. And that is ongoing everywhere. But I got to warn you, Noah, we have steel. We're on Pittsburgh, right? So you just said Rawls. They're trying to they think you mispronounce rails. And so we, we got to oh. slow down. When we say Professor Rawls. We're talking about a theory of social justice where you're blindly put into a state without knowing you, you create the rules for the state and then you're put into it. And it's a it's a justice driven theory. It's interesting. But on page 44, you write, the United States is not a broken society in which the justice system has become an instrument of vindictive, unrepresentative government. Any assertion to the contrary is a fairy tale invented by activists looking to justify their radical program as a moral imperative. We know that to be true, Noah, but the pushback against you on this particular point, I think, has been extreme because it threatens the entire uh, reason for being for the identitarian left. Yeah, and I don't want to make this book sound like it's it's overly academic. It's really, you know, it's really not. It was, it was very much a fun exploration of a philosophy that I think is pretty silly in, for the most part. But I did go into sort of the academic literature about extrajudicial parallel tracks for justice, which is what social justice advocates. They, they think that the justice system as it's currently constructed in America is unjust because it cannot adjudicate claims to their satisfaction. They define them too narrowly. They impose conditions on people that are too traumatic, like having to confront your accuser in court. Things like the Constitution are just too much for the social justice advocate. Uh, there are situations where you would need these extrajudicial fora, mostly post-conflict societies or post-revolutionary societies. And the United States is no such society. It's just not. Um, but that is the conceit that social justice advocates believe. They believe that the, the, the kind of conflicts that arise from prejudice, racial prejudice, gender discrimination, what have you, are ongoing, indefinite, permanent, such that you can't have the kind of justice that you seek in a courtroom, individualized, objective justice. It must be much more subjective and much more collective. And like you said, it's a conceit. It's tribunalism. I mean, it is a... A threat to the rule of law, and this is a rule of law show, and I, I spend a lot of time telling people why I'm a constitutionalist and why we want it to be that way. But it is also a fun book and unjust. By the way, do you know the Luntz rule, uh, Noah? No, I don't. Uh, the Luntz rule, told to me by Frank Luntz in any radio interview, you've got to repeat the term, the, the title of the book, unjust, at least seven times. And so we've said unjust five times now. And if I say unjust just twice more, actually once more, then unjust will meet the Luntz rule. And the Luntz rule is if you want someone to remember the title of a book, you've got to say it seven times in a radio interview. Four or five times in a television interview is fine. Radio interview, because they show the book and they can see it. But when on a radio interview, they've got to hear unjust. Here's the fun part. Uh, you also take on the alt-right, and I'm glad you do. Uh, the alt-right is a funhouse mirror reflection of identitarian movements on the left. From the darkest corner of the alt-right's online haunts to the ivy-covered halls of academia, language that dehumanizes political adversaries, depicting them as one-dimensional creatures of singularly malevolent intent, is rampant. It is inevitable that that kind of incitement will yield violence. So a pox on both their houses is in unjust, and it's long overdue, Noah Rothman. Yeah, I see them very much as <clears throat> two reflections of one another because they believe very much the same thing. They have the, this movement has uh, adopted an idea 
of itself as of being a victim class, as being oppressed by ill-defined, unseen forces that are somehow nevertheless ubiquitous and omniscient, um, that they must appeal to a strong hand to restore that which is their due. Uh, and that the, the tracks of justice in this system are fundamentally arrayed against them, that elites are arrayed against them in a way that requires a sort of upheaval along revolutionary lines. And there is a philosophical ba- uh, background to, to what they believe. It is hostile towards democratic fora, uh, hostile towards uh, the kind of representative governments that we have uh, developed in this country. It believes much more in an aristocratic sort of uh, sort of belief structure. And, uh, and, and the extent to which these they, they speak the same language, they use different vocabulary, was such that I couldn't really overlook it. I, I mean, it, I'm glad it you didn't. Obvious, a it lot of people that you needed to address them both as the same phenomenon. A lot of people, including me at the beginning, didn't quite know what alt right meant. I accused Ben Shapiro of being part of the alt right because I thought he was edgy and like Kurt Schlichter. Would, they're both friends of mine, but I said these guys are alt right, and boy did Ben come down on me like a ton of bricks. And so I, I got a quick education. He's not alt right. Uh, I was thinking, okay, edgier, more combative conservatives. No, it's actually much more uh, nefarious than that. And I want to go make sure that I read from page two hundred five because this is the underlying fundamental truth of unjust. I've got talking with its author, Noah Rothman, those who engaged in violence in 2016 and 2017, by the way, that would be on the left and the right, were born in the most fortunate period in the safest and most stable country mankind has ever known. They were born into stability and relative prosperity, regardless of their personal circumstances. Unless they have migrated from elsewhere, most have never known organized state-supported political terror. But they have nevertheless romanticized political violence and to some extent welcomed it. You know, I read that in Cambodia, Noah. Uh, where the uh, Khmer Rouge, 45 years after the fact or 50 years after the fact, have left behind a decimated country where ideology murdered everyone over 40 or 50, everyone who wore eyeglasses, everyone who had a college degree in this spasm of dystopian violence that the alt-right and the identitarian left seem to glamorize. Yeah, you, you hear this kind of, and it's so perverse, and you hear them talk about this sort of stuff like it's romantic, political violence. Uh, and you can just chalk that up to just, you know, the being bored and comfortable and uneducated, perhaps. But what's most disheartening is that these fringe movements, and they are fringe, aren't being just, just, and it just denounced by the center in this country, by the responsible political elements in both parties. They're rather they're being welcomed or at least tolerated. And it's, it's extremely dangerous to see these kind of movements that are, again, inviting violence, welcoming violence, and sometimes practicing it in the streets and at least talking about it as though it's a a useful political tool in the tool shed. Um, They should be summarily dismissed. But these parties don't seem to have any tools to do that sort of thing. So in the last chapter, if you're with me through this book and you think that this is a problem that needs addressing, I do provide some mechanisms that I hope both parties will appeal to in order to marginalize and stigmatize these ideas. Maybe not the people who believe in them, but certainly their ideas. You know, I think someone who's been doing that is Ben Sass, and I really applaud him on it. The, the, the bell curve of ideology in America does have a farthest 1% on left and right, and they are outside of the mainstream, and they have to be. Now, I pushed Hillary Clinton when she was on last year. How many white supremacists do you think they are? And she agreed with me. It's less than 600,000. All right, we just did some math. How many social justice warriors are genuinely... Uh, sort of crazed and violence-oriented, in your opinion, Noah Rothman? I don't think I could quantify it, but it's certainly around that number. It's very small. Very small. The problem is is that they're very attractive to a much larger, much more influential group. 
And we can monetize their craziness. I, I've seen the Antifa in Portland video a hundred times. I no longer watch them uh, because I don't need to see mindless violence on the left or the right, period. And I think people should not post that stuff because it gives them a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment when they haven't actually satisfied or accomplished anything. Last question, Noah. Uh, unjust Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Big first book. What's next? I am actually working on a second pitch right now, uh, which, yeah, I, I, it's a very rudimentary idea, but it is about essentially the morality of the marketplace. Now, the marketplace is the most moral, found, the most moral institution that has ever been created for addressing the kind of problems that Democrats and liberals believe need to be addressed. The three most prominent are inequality and poverty, the environment, and uh, the marketplace of ideas, stigmatizing ideas that are intolerable and undesirable, whereas every alternative that they've created for addressing these problems has failed and made everything worse. Well, that sounds good, but spend more time promoting unjust. Social justice and the unmaking of America. I'm not done yet. Uh, not done yet. Yeah, done. It's gonna, we're going to sell, 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 and come back on here and just talk. Keep going on MSNBC. Keep debating Eddie. You and Eddie ought to go out in the country on a tour because it's a great conversation, but unjust is a great book. Congratulations on it, Noah Rothman and everyone. I just sent it out again on Twitter. All you have to do is remember unjust and go to Amazon and find Noah Rothman. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.